today to worship. And man, it has already been such a rich and powerful time of worship through song and through that time of prayer. Man, it was so good to, to pray through those, those three areas of thank, being thankful, being humble, being loving. And so much of what we've already walked through this morning uh, really lines up with all that we're going to be looking at in, in God's Word. And we're back in our study looking at the question, who is Jesus? And Mark started us off last week in that study as he looked at how Jesus is the God-man. And it was such a great time uh, that Je- it, just unpacking how Jesus came and lived out the human experience as fully man and as fully God. And he had two natures simultaneously at work that we in our finite brains, just no matter how long we go and just sit and think about that, we will never be able to, to comprehend that. I don't even know like perfection in, in, in heaven as we sit before God's throne. We will marvel at that for, for eternity, how God did that. But uh, I'm so thankful for that message from last week because, uh, as we're going to see in just a few moments, this truth about Jesus it sets the table and it lays the foundation for what we're going to look at today. It, it just lays out all the groundwork that we need. So we are in week two, week two of our study on the life, uh, on the question of who is Jesus. And week two's title is Jesus is our burden bearer. Jesus is the burden bearer. Um, and so turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11, the very end of the chapter, Matthew 11. And uh, if, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, that's okay. Uh, the words will also be on the screen for you. So Matthew 11. And let's read it together, uh, starting in verse 25, 25 through the end. Read along with me. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word today. May he bless it. May he use it to make us more like him, to help us go deeper in knowing his ways uh, our passage today is one that is often quoted. If you've been around any kind of Christian circles for any length of time, uh, this is a fairly familiar couple of verses we're looking at at the end of Matthew 11. Uh, so because of that, I want, I want us to unpack this in a way where we look at this with fresh eyes, not letting past experience or tradition or anything like that impact our, our time today, but let's look at this with eyes that are fresh so that God may really just impact our hearts in a deep way. And over the last few months, several of us have been reading through the Bible using a, a couple different methods of, of Bible reading plans where you read a little bit of the Bible every day and it stacks up month after month until we get to the end of the year. You've read through the whole Bible in a year. And one of the things I love about reading the Bible this way is that you get the context of everything that happens. You, you don't miss anything that happens in the story. You don't pick up the plot halfway through. You don't skip out on any of the details. You get the whole picture and the whole story. 
And in the same way, today, it's essential for us to bear in mind the context of this passage. Because we can very easily jump into those last two verses and to this great truth that Jesus is talking about. And we could pull out some great things, but devoid from the context. Uh, these, are, these are beautiful words. They're powerful words. They're, they're applicable to where all of us are today. But unless we understand the context for, for where these words come in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus and what Jesus is saying and how he's contrasting it with what's gone on before in this chapter, we could easily miss the actual main point of what Jesus is communicating. So let's do that today. Let's take just a couple moments and look at context. In, in the lead up, we're in Matthew 11, but if in the lead up to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has been traveling from village to village He's been with his disciples. His disciples have been watching as he has been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been performing miracles. And at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, what we see is that Jesus commissions his disciples to go out to several different villages around the area to places that Jesus himself is going to be traveling to in the days ahead. And Jesus tasks them with preaching and teaching the same message that, he, that they've been hearing him preach and teach from the days previous. So they're to be, out, be about this task of preaching and teaching, and then they're going to come back after a time and to report back to Jesus all that they've experienced and all that they encountered. When the section of Matthew 11 that's just before our passage, we find Jesus pronouncing judgment, that he, he just pronounces judgment upon those who have not believed in him. Uh, apparently, there have been several villages and towns where uh, Jesus has focused a lot of his ministry and he's concentrated a lot of ministry only for the crowds in those places not to believe in him. They've been more concerned with the show of it all. They've been more concerned with the entertainment value of it all and, and, and really even the benefits of being associated with Jesus' ministry. And if it were today, there'd be neon signs with, this is the home of Jesus' ministry. This is where he's doing, uh, come see right here, five pounds for where Jesus healed this person. You know, that, that's kind of what the, the dynamic was. Uh, people were really excited about what they could get out of the show and the spectacle. So from Matthew's gospel... It seems like Jesus just launches off into this rant. Well, he, he's had enough. He's just going to start pronouncing judgment. Uh, but thanks to the beauty of how God has put together this word, how he has used human authors to write his inspired words, we see that in Luke's gospel, another glimpse of this, it, it, provide, it provides a great help. It, it provides a, a full of uh, a filling out of the picture. So in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, we found, find out that this pronouncement of judgment that we see in our passage in Matthew 11 is all in the context of Jesus giving instructions to those disciples as he's sending them out. He, he's talking about how his disciples are to respond to people who are receptive to all that they have to say, as well as to those who are unwilling to even listen to anything that these disciples have to say. And this is what Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 to 12. He says, When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Man, those are some very stark words. Um, it would be funny to think about what Jesus is saying if it weren't so tragic. 
that people are actually experienced that. When you line this up with Matthew 11, especially with Matthew's account of, of what we've been looking at, this is very similar to the content of judgment that Jesus said, woe to Chorazin, woe to all these towns. You know, if, if you would have just believed, it's going to be easier for Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Seeing these two passages together, we get such a clear picture. Because here's the thing, Jesus pronounces judgment on these towns, but really, thanks to Matthew 11 and just before our passage, we see that this judgment extends not just to these towns, he's really talking about the entire generation of Israelites of his day, especially the religious elite, because they're the ones who should recognize his message. They're studied, they're prepared, it's been 400 years since God has spoken, they've been waiting for a prophet from God They're the ones who should be most receptive to his message. Yet, they reject Jesus and his message. So Jesus, he condemns them for this. In fact, he says that on the day of judgment, their judgment from God will be more severe than that of the city of Sodom, which is consistently throughout the scriptures made to represent the most morally corrupt, the most vile place in all of scripture. So when you get to our passage now, at the end of Matthew 11, we find a contrast at work. Jesus has condemned those who have not believed in him, including those religious elite, and he contrasts their response to another group. And he contrasts it, and that's where our passage picks up. We we find Jesus giving praise to the Father for allowing those who were seemingly insignificant in the eyes of society to be the ones who receive the message of truth and actually believe in Jesus. So don't miss this today. What stands out about that first group who received condemnation and judgment is that they are consistently wise in their own eyes. They are self-important. They are more concerned with how others view them than they are with the things of God. They're the ones who are unwilling to listen to the message of Jesus because they are sure, they are sure that they know better in their hearts than this foolishness that Jesus is preaching. So once again, let's read back over our passage now that we are armed with the context in that background, background info. Let's read it from a place of having this whole picture. Matthew 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, there's a lot to consider and wrap your mind around as you look at these verses, and we could easily spend every bit, every single second of the rest of our time just on verses 25 and 26 alone, that that God in his sovereignty works and wills and saves, that he orchestrates things in such a way that the outcome is that some have truth revealed and some have truth hidden from them. And maybe you balk at that. Maybe, maybe that just doesn't sit well. Maybe you recoil a little bit at that. Maybe that's hard to accept. And honestly, I don't know a single person who, 
uh, knows the ins and outs of this to a degree to where it's just crystal clear how this works and why this works and, 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 and the ways of God in this way. But if you're in a place of struggling with how to accept the truth of these two verses, I just want to share a word that's been on my heart all week long. And that word is the term providence. Now, providence isn't a word uh, that we use today. It's, it's an older word. It used to be a central part of Christian thought and Christian worship, but it's almost completely forgotten today to us. The providence of God and the sovereignty of God, they are related, but they're not the same thing. God is indeed sovereign over all things. I mean, he has the power, the ability to rule and to reign. He is sovereign in that there is no one in greater authority or position over him. No one has power over him. He's sovereign. But God is also perfectly good to the absolute core of his being. He only pursues what's best. And what is best is to make much of himself because he's the most glorious the most holy, the most worthy, the most valuable being that ever has been and ever will be. So God is sovereign and he's also supremely good. And when you merge these two truths together, God's sovereignty and his perfect goodness, the end result is providence. God not only has the actual power to be over all things, but he works in such a way to direct things to fulfill his good purposes. Since he's absolutely perfectly good to his core, every one of his purposes are good. And he only, only, only orchestrates and brings about things toward the goal of what's best. We just have to acknowledge this morning that our view of all things, our circumstances, the world we live in, and our view of all of that, how all of that works, that we, we have a very different view from the one that God has. Our tech team, we've been on a bit of a journey this last year as we have worked through different phases of lockdown and uh, we started off with filming different segments and put it on the webpage and then we began gathering ahead of time and pre-recording the whole thing and, and now we're on this crazy adrenaline-filled adventure of live streaming because you just never know what's going to happen live uh, and it's been, uh, been fun and good and stretching. But we've gotten to this place where we use two cameras during the sermon time uh, uh, to, to capture whoever's preaching. And the crazy thing is that both of these cameras are relatively situated close to one another, side by side, uh, just a, a few inches apart. While, uh, but one of them has a wide-angle lens to capture everything, the background behind me, but the, and the other one has a zoom lens to capture a much smaller area, a focused area. And I, I point all of those out because... For us this morning, we have to recognize that our view of all things is much like the camera with the zoom lens. We see things much differently than God does. The scope of what we see is so much more limited than all that God sees. His vision, his depth of field is uninhibited. It's unlimited. Therefore, when we come to truths that are hard like this one, we, we have a choice. We can either believe that God is good and that he's just and that he's holy, or we can choose to believe that we know better than he does from our very limited perspective. And though we don't always understand all of this from our finite perspective, God is calling us to trust him and to trust in his providence. 
He's not only all-powerful over all things, but man, he is infinitely good. And when we trust him as he works all things, we can trust that he is fulfilling his good purposes. Pastor and author David Quad writes this about this very topic. He says, Every day when the sun rises, you know that trouble awaits you. Jesus said that in Matthew 6. But you also know that his new mercies will sustain you. Find that in Lamentations 3. Providence tells you that you can be at peace because the one who has the power to control the sun also has the power to govern your life. That's such a rich thought. And should we continue to struggle with this, listen to what Puritan preacher John Flavel wrote in his book, The Mystery of Providence. In it, he makes this point. Providence is wiser than you, and you may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. There's so much more we could say to this, but we need to move on for now. As you read through Matthew 11, it would be easy to wonder about how all of this connects. I mean, Jesus is pronouncing judgment. We have this whole thing about God's providence. He's, he makes this weird blanket, you know, individual statement. I, no one knows the Father except the Son. And then he goes on to give this invitation at the very last two verses. So come to me, all who are weary. And from one perspective, it could be like, how in the world do all these things fit together? Are these just kind of this hodgepodge of sayings? No, the, this is connected because I believe we have a, a hinge point at play here. And it's essentially what Mark preached on last week, how Jesus is the God-man, that there's this hinge point in this passage. The focal point for us today has to be on the truth that we extrapolate out of verse 27. And you'd be very hard-pressed to find another place in Scripture where Jesus reveals his true nature of being fully God and fully man as explicitly as in this verse and that, then, is the foundation upon which we get this amazing invitation that comes at the end of this chapter. Mark said it last week, that Jesus is the God-man. And that's why in verse 27, all things have been entrusted to him. That's why in verse 27, he says that no one knows the Father except the Son, Jesus. And no one knows the Son, Jesus, except the Father, and this word know is more than just an accumulation of knowledge. It's more than just knowing about a subject. It's an intimate knowledge. The, the root Greek word, epigenosko, it implies that this is a knowledge that comes only through personal firsthand experience. Uh, and, and my wife and I, we have, we have two children, and we have stri strived this last year to, to laugh a lot, especially in these crazy days that are filled with anxiety and fear and just crazy situations. And for me, that has meant just being really silly with my, my kids. I, I tend to be that way anyway, but especially in these last year, I've just tried really hard to laugh a lot and be silly. And you know what? My kids have really taken me to task in that. And they've begun to emulate that and one-up me. Uh, and so we, we have this kind of back and forth where who can laugh the most? You know, who, who's more silly? And the more and more we live life together, the more we learn each other, we learn our tendencies. And my kids have just gotten to the point where I can walk into a room and if they're on a couch or a sofa or a chair and they have an arm up or they, you know, however they're sitting, kick back with their arm, they instantly will cover a rib, cover their arm, cover their neck without even looking in my direction because they know from firsthand personal experience that my tickling them is imminent. 
they know it's coming. And, and the same is true, though, of the reverse, that I can walk into the room without turning my head, without diverting my gaze, and I can just point right there or point right there behind a piece of furniture, behind the door to where there's a child ready to pounce on me to try to get me, to scare me or tickle me. And the same response, the same question is given in both of those scenarios. How did you know? How did you know that I was going to tickle you? How did you know I was hiding there? How did you know? And Again, the same response then follows in both of those situations. Because I know you. I know you. I've lived life with you long enough to know that you're going to tickle me in this situation. Or I've lived life long enough to know that you're just going to be hiding in that spot or that spot or that spot. And I don't even, I just just know that. And in verses 25 and 26, Jesus isn't marveling at God's providence from afar He isn't a distant admirer of this. He has personal, firsthand experience that has shaped his knowledge. Jesus is praising God the Father from a place of proficient expertise on this subject. He's recognizing how all of this works together from a place of personal experience of intimately knowing and being part of this whole process. He knows the Father in a way that only comes with and through spending eternity in the most intimate of relationships with him. He's not just speaking as a man, but as the God-man. It's important for us today that we, we keep all of this in mind because it's precisely since Jesus is the God-man that he is the burden-bearer. If he weren't the God-man, he could not be our burden-bearer. Only he could be the burden-bearer because only he bridges the gap between God and man. Now, this week, I just finished up reading about the life and ministry of Moses. And, And Moses is considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. I mean, he truly fulfilled that role of being the messenger of God and being the mouthpiece of God to the people of God. But there are a couple of instances where Moses actually becomes the the actual go-between between between God and and man. And and more than just being a messenger, we see that in multiple instances, Moses actually finds himself pleading to God on behalf of the people. As you you read through the passages, it feels like he's the only thing separating the wrath of a holy God from absolutely obliterating the people of God. They are continually rebellious. I mean, they continually disobey God in the most blatant and disrespectful of ways. But Moses follows their actions with, I mean, it says it multiple times that he falls flat on his face and he just begins to plead to God to spare them. He stands between God and the people. And this is a really rare dynamic. In this position, we really only find we see Moses do this, and we see that the the Old Testament high priest was supposed to do this, that that they operate in this place where they stand in a place in between God and the people. And it's a really, really, really rare thing that happens in Scripture right up until we find Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, he then steps into this role in a way that Moses never could, in a way that the Old Testament high priest never could, because Jesus relates to both parties. He's fully God and he's fully man, so he understands what it's like to be Almighty God. He also understands what it's like to experience and live in this broken, 
broken, fallen world. He's able to bridge that gap because of this intimate knowledge. And we see from Scripture that the way he accomplishes that bridging of that gap ultimately is in his living a perfect life and dying a death he didn't deserve in our place. And then he raises again in victory. No ordinary man can live perfectly before God. Every single person who's ever been born apart from Jesus has disobeyed God, has rebelled God, has gone against God's ways. Only Jesus, because he was not just fully man, but fully God, was able to live a perfect life before God. That qualified only him to be the perfect substitute, to pay the consequences of your rebellion and my rebellion. Listen to what this God-man says in the last couple of verses of our passage. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's extremely crucial to remember that this invitation isn't being extended by some far-off, aloof deity. It's being extended by the one who ultimately knows both sides, what it's like to be Almighty God and what it's like to live in this fallen world. Come to me. This isn't a hint. It's a declaration. It's written as a declaration in the Greek. Come here. It's a beckoning to drop what you're doing right now. Forget everything else right now besides drawing near to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. As you think about this invitation, how you understand this phrase, all who are weary and burdened, it determines whether you really grasp what Jesus is communicating or not. Those, the, the word weary in the Greek, it literally means that those who are tired from working hard. But the word burden, I mean, it truly reveals the heart of this invitation. This word means to be overburdened with ceremony. And these two words together tell us what he's inviting those, that he's inviting those who have been weighed down and overworked by striving underneath the weight of religion. Religion and, and, and the working and exerting all that they have to be good enough and to measure up. Remember our context that we talked about. Jesus has been pronouncing judgment on those who are wise in their own eyes, who are unwilling to listen to the message of the gospel. And then he rejoices that the message of salvation is revealed to those who don't think themselves wise. And the word infants is used there because Infants, they're in a place, if you've ever had an infant, you know, an infant can, act, can do nothing for themselves. Every need has to be provided for them, for those who aren't too proud to listen. He invites those who've been under a weight of a religious system that has morphed into something that has made it impossible to carry the load of all the ceremonies, all the rituals, all the requirements and the rules that have to be followed. See, the religious elite of Jesus' day and the generations preceding Jesus, they, they've become so legalistic about following the Old Testament law that they've actually added extra rules and rituals on top of the rules and rituals that God gave in the Old Testament. So now 
the people are not only obligated to follow the rules and regulation that God gives, but society then gives this pressure. Well, that's not enough. You actually have to, instead of stopping here, you have to do all these other things before you ever even get to here. And so it's this whole set of rules and regulations that people were struggling underneath. There's all these add-ons. And Jesus offers the same today as it was then. Are you feeling like you're under an impossible weight of trying to measure up? of trying to be good enough, of trying to be righteous enough, of trying to earn enough good points to try to tip those cosmic scales in your favor one day. As we face the truth today, the Bible tells us that this is impossible. There is no one who is good enough according to God's standard of goodness. Oh, we can try and justify it. We can look around our life and surely we can find someone to compare ourselves with. Oh, but I'm not doing what they're doing. Whew, I'm, I'm, I must be doing okay because I'm not as bad as that situation. We can find, all of us can find, even the worst of us can find someone like that. But the standard that God sets tells us that all of us, every single one of us fall short of being good. Scripture tells us that not only are we failing to meet God's standard, but actually in our hearts, we've all turned away from God. We've turned away from Him. And as we face that, we, we confront that and come face to face with that, Jesus beckons us. He, he, he says, are you weary and overworked from trying to live this way? Then come to me. Follow me. I have a better way. In his book, The Bruised Reed, uh, Richard Sibbs writes this, God knows we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives, but gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. Jesus is all that we need. God the Father sent the Son to be our Savior. If we'll trust and put our faith in Jesus, he will make us right with God. He now requires nothing from us but what he's already provided for us. Jesus offers another way. He offers a way of hope, a way of peace, a way of community, a way of joy. In verse 29, Jesus says, take up my yoke. Take up my yoke. Learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take up my yoke. The offer is not free from hardship. <laughs> Another way to define that word yoke is servitude. And Jesus is calling us to serve him because his ways are better than our ways. He invites us to learn from him. He says, learn from me. And again, he isn't teaching us something that, that he isn't deeply familiar with. He's teaching a better way that comes directly from his own character. He says, I am lowly, I am humble in heart. We said yoke means servitude. And here Jesus is talking about become lowly and humble. That doesn't really sound appealing from the outside, does it? You're asking me to be a servant and lowly and humble and all these things. But what you find when you put these words together, lowly and humble, is the antithesis of self-reliance. And this specifically points to being reliant upon God. And that's consistent with what we've seen so far today, isn't it? Jesus is saying, are you feeling like you're at the end of your rope, that you're just trying to be good enough and earn your way into God's graces? If so, come learn from me. 
Learn how to serve God. Learn how to rely on God. Because if we'll submit and surrender to him, then there's a promise that follows. You will find rest for your souls. Rest. Do you need rest? Are you you tired of striving? Are you weary of struggling with the same old thing week after week, month after month, year after year as you pursue just trying to be good enough Still under the doubt of, am I being good enough? I'm trying to be good enough. Am I? Can I know? There's a fear. There's a guilt. Jesus' way is a better way. He says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Remember, yoke means servitude. And being a servant the way he's calling us to be a servant is so rich, it's so fulfilling that it's actually restful. It's refreshing. Following Jesus means that, that Jesus is to be our substitute. Living life following after him means that the trials of life are easily managed because of the one we're following. Oh, his way isn't free from hardship. Following him doesn't mean you'll never experience difficulty or pain. In fact, he promises that life will be difficult, that there will be pain. You can expect being misunderstood, being mistreated, even persecuted. But the way of Jesus is infinitely more peaceful and joyful than the futile way of trying to earn your way into heaven or God's good graces. First and foremost, this is what this invitation is talking about. As the God-man, Jesus lived such a righteous life, such a perfect life, that he actually fulfilled all those seemingly impossible Old Testament rules and rituals and regulations that you find as you read through the first chunk of the Old Testament. We all failed. Every one of us have failed to meet the standard of perfection that God has for us. But Jesus fulfilled them all on our behalf. Jesus offers to be the bearer of the most important burden and that any of us can carry. Jesus bore the burden of fulfilling the law and the prophets. And if we'll trust him as our substitute, this becomes even richer for us. It opens a door of not just fulfilling the law and the prophets, but, but we see that this promise and this invitation expands into, into us being able to release every burden and every anxious thought. So it goes from being this weight of being made right before God to now, man, am I anxious Am I worried? Am I fearful? I can just give that to Christ. He, he says, give it to me. I mean, and though initially what he's talking about is this, this trying to be good enough, religious enough, or be, to be right with God. When we walk with him, this means so much more for us. Christian, think about this for a moment. What does he call his people to do over and over and over again in the Bible? He calls us to trust him. He calls us to wait on him to seek him, to cast all our cares upon him. He calls us not to be afraid. He calls us to trust in him with everything. He calls us to look to him even when things seem impossible. He's the one who makes a way where there is no way. That's been his MO throughout history. It's not figurative. It's not just some song that we sing. We sang that song, Waymaker, this morning because God, through Jesus, has made a way to have a relationship with him. And now God, through the Holy Spirit, makes a way for us to live in a manner that enables us to give him every anxious thought. 
and every fear and every self-exalting thought that would make less of him and more of ourselves. He invites us to seek him, to follow him, to be obedient to him, and to grow more in relationship with him so that we might pursue making much of him. To that end, man, we, he will do what brings himself most glory in his providence. He works for our good and his glory. That means, listen, listen to me this morning. That means he can open the door that seems impossibly shut. He can, that thing that seems so far out of reach and impossible, he can open the door to that. Come to, come to him with your burdens. Trust him with your weariness. Cast your anxious thoughts and troubled hearts upon him. And in him you will find rest, refreshment. Not just like one good night's sleep. You ever been in a season of life where you're so weary and you get one good night's sleep and you say, oh, that was so good, but man, I could use about eight more before I really... No, 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 no. Refreshment like we've never known. Refreshment for your soul. You will know joy in the darkest of nights. As we wrap up our time this morning, we just have another minute or so and we're done. I have really two application points and they're really, they're, they're two admonitions for us as much as anything. And the first is for those who are watching who, who are not followers of Jesus, that you have never trusted Jesus in this way that we've been talking about. Jesus invites you to follow him. He beckons that you come and trust him to, to be the substitute you need to be made right with God. Are you tired of striving and trying to be good enough only to live in fear that that's not the case? That endeavor is exhausting. And that's because it's impossible. You weren't meant to live this way. Are you weary trying to be good? I have bad news and good news. And the bad news is you will never be good on your own. You'll never measure up on your own outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The good news is, is that God offers another way. He offers a way through Jesus. You don't have to keep striving under the weight you can't carry. Jesus offers to carry it for you. In his providence, he is working all things toward the end of his good purposes. And if you sent him tugging at your heart right now, don't, don't, don't ignore that. Acknowledge him. Call upon him. Turn to him. If that's you today and you're watching live, whatever platform you're watching, there's someone who is available to talk to you. If you're on our, our website and the Church Online platform, there's, you can click that prayer button and someone will will be in a, a private chat with you and would love to talk and pray. If you're on Facebook, YouTube, whatever it is, uh, get in touch with us. We would love to talk more about this and pray with you. Maybe you're watching this not live later on. Get in contact with us through one of our social media platforms or email us, info at denistonbaptist.co.uk. We would love to talk to you. The second admonition is for the Christian this morning, including myself, and it's this. Stop reverting to self-reliance. Stop going back there. You don't need to pick back up that burden that Jesus has already carried for you. 
You don't need to earn anything with God. Christ has done it all for you, once and for all. What did he say on the cross just before he died? It is finished. It's done. You no longer have to carry the burden. You are now made right with God. Therefore, every, every anxious thought, are you worried about the job situation? Are you worried about that relationship issue in your life? Are you worried and fearful about going outside and becoming ill? Every anxious thought, every fearful thought, you can trust him with it. From the smallest of things to the largest of weights, he invites us to cast our cares upon him. Because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. It's refreshing. You'll find rest for your souls. Trust him. Rely on him. Cast your cares upon him. Rest in his providence that he is working out all things for the good, for those who love him, who are called according to his good purposes. There's joy in following after Jesus when we give him our burdens. You can trust him today. He's calling you to do that right now. Friends, Jesus is the only burden bearer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made the way for us to cast our cares upon you through providing Jesus, the God-man. Thank you, Jesus, that in your power, in your glory, in, in your divinity, humanity, you know intimately what it's like. You know what we experience and you know the other side of being the one who sees all things and knows all things. So thank you that you relate to us. You have compassion upon us. You carry the burden for us. And you invite us to cast every care upon you. So help us today to be faithful to do that. I pray for the person right now who's watching, who's, who's afraid of what this might mean in their life. Of the pressure they might receive from friends or from families if they actually follow through in doing this. Lord, I pray that you would give courage, that you would give a boldness, help them to step out in faith today. And I pray for that follower of Jesus who's really struggling right now, who, who is having a difficult time, feels overwhelmed with anxiety, overwhelmed with fear. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would grant the, your perfect peace to fill their hearts to right now so that they would know that you are trustworthy that you're more than capable, that you are, are faithful to take upon every burden that we cast upon you. So help us today to be faithful to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you today, church family.